Thank you. God bless you. We are continuing, as Justin said, the hope that Jesus gives. Thank you. And um, I, I've just got to say it again. Thank you for these 15 days of prayer that uh, uh, Pastor Justin has called the church to for um, for my heart and, and for my eye. Um, I can't tell you how counterintuitive it was to preach Easter Sunday with a scowl on your face, but um, I, I just wanted to explain the, the good report we got is um, um, I had a very severe infection that is coming under control. That's what we're thankful for because we weren't sure that was going to happen. Um, I still can't see out of my eye, still very light sensitive, but he says all of that should correct itself. So we're thankful. And I just want to encourage you to continue the prayer uh, for me. Thank you. And, um, and, and I'm, I'm trusting that uh, the church is, I don't say this, put pressure. I'm, I'm saying this, just making a statement of faith. I'm trusting the prayer, the, the, the prayers of the church to, to press through and get me totally past both of these things. I don't want to just get a little better and then have to face it again. Um, this is the second tear that I've had in four months. Um, the other were not nearly as severe as this and not infected, but um, um, and unless God heals, I am looking at a cornea transplant in both eyes. Um, but I, you know, I will accept healing if we have to go that route. So I, you know, I'm teasing, but I, I would, I would love for the Lord to heal. So thank you for praying for me. And in the meantime, just excuse my, my scowl. And, uh, I, pr I promise, uh, my heart's full of love, even if my face is scowling a little bit, but, um, we want to talk tonight about what to do and how to have hope when your world falls apart. How to have hope when your world falls apart. I'm going to mention a TV series uh, in just a moment. Uh, when I make a point, I want to go ahead and make the um, recommendation to you. Have, has, have any of you seen any episodes of The Chosen? Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe eight or ten or so, maybe a few more. Um, uh, I've, I've watched it about five times through. I think it's magnificent. Um, they completed season one and they just released episode one of season two. And um, I, I'm, I'm not very um, computer savvy. I know there's a worldwide web internet thing, but um, as, as Adrian Monk used to say, but if you go and get the app for The Chosen, it'll tell you how to watch it and, and how to do it free or you can also make an investment. But um, I want to recommend that to you. And I encourage you to don't, don't start with season two. Go to season one because that was so foundational to character development. The goal of The Chosen is to be a, a seven-season biography of Jesus. And uh, it's, it's, it's very good, very good. Um, let's look at 1 Samuel 30. Now, you're familiar with this passage because... Oh, the time runs together. Maybe, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, um, when I preached through the life of David, um, this is the chapter you'll remember when David, he didn't know it, but this was his last disaster before he became king. 
Uh, now, it wasn't the last disaster he would have. It wasn't the first one. But uh, the story of David at Ziklag and the tragedy that happened there and how God helped him, it was, a, it was looking back on it, it was a point of, of either making or breaking for David. Um, he had no idea. David did not know when his world fell apart that this was the last battle before a promise that was made to him about 13, 14 years earlier would come to pass. Right after this, David becomes king, but he didn't know it. And we spent that Sunday kind of emphasizing the idea that don't give up because you never know when you're, when you, when you're, you, you never know when your coronation day is. You never know that you may be just one battle away from God totally reshaping your life. That's not the approach I want to take tonight, but it's good to remember. Let's refresh our memory with this story again. Now it says, now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, now David had tried to go into battle with Saul. Um, um, well, I guess you should say against Saul, but David had, had, um, David had been, he had been running from Saul, but he had also been destroying the enemies of Saul at the same time. And David was not allowed to fight in this battle. And it seemed strange. It seemed that David had this master plan, but it was all of a sudden the rug was pulled out from under him. And what we know um, is that God was taking care of David because it was time for Saul to be eliminated. Saul was going to die along with his sons. And um, God did not want David anywhere near this. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is uh, the fourth lesson, and this is the third out of four lessons on hope when I've begun with a sneeze. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> I guess it's just the pollen. But um, God was keeping him away from the battle because everybody had been telling David, kill the man. You've had at least two opportunities to kill Saul. Take his life and move on. And, and everybody knows God's hand is on you. Even Saul's son, Jonathan, said, David, you're, you're the next king. It's not me. And, and, I, I, and whenever you are king, and, and it would be basically in Jonathan's place. He said, whenever you are king, I will be alongside you to serve you. But in the wisdom of God, the people would have probably never allowed that to happen, to have a son of Saul um, not serve as king. And God in his, in his providence allowed Jonathan, who's a very good man, to be taken very early in life um, and, and um, in, in the same battle as his father and, and some of his brothers. Um, so David goes to battle using this plan. He was fighting for the enemy, but what he would do, he'd say, I'm going to fight Israel. And he would then turn and fight Israel's enemies. And um, David knew what he was doing, but it was a tightrope he was walking. So they sent him back home. They weren't going to let him fight. And when he gets back to Ziklag, which was a city, now you remember David lived in the wilderness for years. And there was a, a part of his life he, willed in the wilder, he lived in the wilderness that was a forest. There was a part of the time he lived in a wilderness that was a wooded, I mean a, a desert area. And um, then there was a time when 
uh, he seemed to just be nomadic and traveling. And David had spent a, but very little time in a city, but he had been given this city, Ziklag. And now he's gone back <clears throat> to Ziklag where they left their wives and children. And um, it, it says, David and his men came home on the third day, but the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome it and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. Now you can imagine in some ways this would be worse in the minds of the men of Israel to not know the fate of their wives and children. Um, in some ways, I, I'm not, I don't say this casually, but in, in some ways it would have been easier to see them dead than to see them carried off to an unknown fate, un, not knowing if they'd ever see them again. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Um, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul. Now, these were the men that had become one with David. And that's a lesson in and of itself right there. Those that you would think would never turn against you, given a wrong set of circumstances, if they allow bitterness into their heart, you may find yourself with unexpected enemies. We all have that tendency. And it's a danger that we all need to beware of, that, that we don't let something like that enter our heart toward our friends. They were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Um, some versions say David found strength in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. That's how they determined the will of God. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men. Um, 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a, a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negev and against that which belongs to Judah, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to the band? Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me in the hands of my master, and I'll take you down. Now, when he had taken him down to, to where the enemy was, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. 
<clears throat> and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook Bezor, and they went out to meet David and meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the worthless or wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil which we have recovered, <coughs> excuse me, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who, uh, who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. And it was for those in Bethel, uh, in Jatir, in Eror, in um, uh, Eshtimoah, uh, in Rakal, in the cities uh, that were spread out that David had been bringing tribute to um, in Hebron for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Now, Father, this is a story we're well familiar with, but help us to just dig a little bit deeper tonight, get under the surface, and um, we're going to lay the obvious lessons to the side, and we're going to talk tonight, Lord, with your help about how to have hope when there's no reason to have hope. Um, we know that hope is like faith, hope is like love. Faith, hope, and love, they abound and abide together. But all three of them are more easily felt and more easily expressed in some settings than in others. So help us to get just a little bit of an idea of what we do when hope is um, seemingly gone because life has fallen apart. Give us your wisdom by the Spirit. Help us, Holy Spirit. We ask you to come and show us things that we need to make right before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, in the uh, second season of The Chosen, episode one begins with Jesus' ministry to uh, the city of Sychar, the land of the um, uh, Samaritans where he had met the woman, um, you know, beside the well. And someone asked him, they said, Jesus, when you uh, set up your kingdom, Will all of the injustice stop? And of course, this is a big theological battle that's going on today among pastors and denominations and theologians. Um, what does it mean for the kingdom of God to come? And that's another topic for another time. There are some that believe nothing will be set right till Jesus comes back. There are some that believe that Jesus won't come back until we get everything set right. 
And then there are two or three major views in between, you know, kind of in the middle of that. But in this series, I think Jesus gave a good answer. It's one worth thinking about. He said in this, in this television show, and it's not a, it's not a verse from scripture. Um, I do believe it is the teaching of scripture, but Jesus said, um, the kingdom of God is come and the kingdom of God will increase. We know Jesus said both of those things. He said this in, in the TV show, bones will still break, hearts will still break, but I promise you before the end, light will overcome darkness. Before the end, light will overcome darkness. We live in a tension of now and not yet. It's the tension of the kingdom. There are plenty of scriptures that teach that the kingdom of God has come. We're going to talk about this Sunday when we talk about what the, what, what the people of God look like after Easter. You know, we, we, we tend to celebrate Easter and then just get into the routine. You know, we say, well, I can't help it, Pastor. Tax days right after Easter, you know, and it's hard to stay up. I understand that. Believe me. But um, there was, there was a, 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 a change of mind in the people of God after Easter. Um, uh, about a half dozen changes that took place. And um, one of the things we'll talk about Sunday that we have to navigate is the idea of now, but not yet. Uh, this day and later. The kingdom of God has come and the kingdom of God is real, but the kingdom of God is not here in its fullness. Now we pray for it. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer and that's what we work for. And, and as I said, good people, there are good people that I consider my friends and, and some of them I, I, you know, I, I love to hear them preach every time I get a chance. They are convinced that it is the job of the church to make the world the kingdom of God. And, you know, we've, we've got these seven mountaintops. We've got these seven, which I, I think the seven mountaintops that Lance Wall now teaches are seven good targets for us. But, uh, but I, I don't agree that it's going to happen before Jesus comes. Because the Bible said, now I do believe that we are to bring the kingdom of God. And I, I have no problem with saying that the light will get brighter as the church does its job. But the fact of the matter is that the enemy will not be destroyed until Jesus comes and destroys him by the brightness of his coming. Now, with that being said, it's also wrong to say, well, I, I'm just praying for the rapture. Nothing's going to happen until Jesus comes anyway. So I just want to get him. I just want him to get us out of here. That's an equally wrong uh, mindset. We do what we can. We do everything in our power. To, to better our communities, to make them reflect the kingdom of God. But we, we are under no illusions. There, there is a sense of justice that no political party can bring. There's a sense of, there's a sense of blessing that no e economic plan can bring. Some things will not happen until Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom. And that's what this uh, television Jesus was trying to say. He says, I'm telling you, the kingdom of God is here. And, and, and he said, it's, it, it, things aren't right now. 
He says, you and the Jews, uh, to the Samaritans, you and the Jews are, are, are debating over how do we worship? Where do we worship? What's the right position to take? He said, I'm not telling you that either of you is right. I'm telling you that to truly worship God, it has to be done in spirit and in truth. So what we've got to understand about hope is that you and I are going to be tempted to lose hope over and over and over. There are going to be tragedies, the loss of a child, the disintegration of a marriage, uh, failing health. There, there are tragedies that we will go through and any one of those things are of sufficient trauma to rob you of hope. And even if you know it's not true that there is no hope, sometimes circumstances make you a believer in that, even if it's only for a short period of time. Um, I, I have um, talked with people with, with a, a chemical imbalance, and, and, uh, uh, which is probably more common than we realize. And I, if I've heard this once, I've heard it a dozen times, um, Pastor, I know this isn't true when I go through this. I know it's not true, but I can't get it out of my heart or my mind because something happens in the, the chemistry of my makeup that uh, whether it's for this reason or that reason. And, you know, we Pentecostals just say, oh, you just need more faith. Well, maybe. And you, sometimes you need healing. Sometimes you need medicine, you know. But... But I'm saying there are things that happen. Hope seems to be distant. So what do we do when hope seems to disappear because our world is falling apart? I didn't even put this in the notes because I was afraid it would be misunderstood. You got you to decide one of two approaches. Uh, you have to decide if, if my hopelessness is demonic or illusional. You know, is, is, is the enemy just trying to convince me of this hopelessness? Or is there something going on in my chemistry that is making me struggle with this? Um, in, in other words, is it real or not? Now, that's generally a fairly easy thing to do if you're struggling with hopelessness and can't pin down a legitimate, you know, if you are hopeless because... Um, you know, the Chiefs didn't win the Super Bowl. You need, a, you need a real reality check. You know, something like that. You say, well, it's real. They didn't win. It, our hope is not in a football team, you know. Um, but you, it, it, it's usually easy to just say, there's no reason for me to feel this way. These are lies. You know, and you resist it. You realize that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. But there are also times that the trauma is real. This that David faced was real. And, you know, we say, yeah, but he encouraged himself in the Lord and everything was fine. That's because we read the end. But when we go through it, we don't always know what the end is. You know, we read Job far too casually. We, we read Job far too glibly. You know, we, you know we, we like to read Job and say, Job, hang in there, buddy. I know something you don't know. That's the problem. We know it. Job didn't know it. Now, he eventually found out. But we need to be gracious to people that are going through tough times. Don't, don't just say, oh, you just got to have faith. Oh, shake this off. Especially when you've not gone through that kind of trauma yourself. Because those things are real. 
Those things are very real. Now, sometimes I've seen people when they lost a spouse or lost a job or whatever, I've seen some people that handled it well and some people didn't handle it well. But when it's a reality, we need to look at it a little, a little more, what's the word, mercifully. David faced, imagine what it would what it would do to you if you went home to find that all of your family had been kidnapped, taken away. You don't know if they're, you don't know if they're being raped. You don't know if they're being sold into slavery. You don't have any idea what's happened to your family. I can think of nothing worse. And on top of that, your whole support network says, I know what we need to do. We need to kill you. So the support network is gone and the family network is gone and everything that you're hoping that you put in your hope for the future is now suddenly taken away. Now, I know it's hard for us to imagine that and thank God it's hard for us to imagine that. But let's look at what David did. Um, and we, we, we found out that, number one, he got the facts. And then we found out that he sought the Lord. And then there's this mysterious statement that says he strengthened himself in the Lord. Now, I've heard all kinds of sermons about that. I've preached about it myself several times. And I tend to think of what I do to encourage myself in the Lord. We're not sure what David did, but we've got some ideas. Um, let's just make some observations. Uh, this is not a, here are seven things that David did. These are some observations, and I think we see them surface in David's life. <clears throat> number one, letter A on your outline under number two, don't cave into despair. <laughs> when, when you are facing the dismantling of your world, the first thing you need to do, whether you're sitting in a doctor's office or in attorney's office or the banker's office, the first thing you need to do is not cave into despair. The first thing we need to do is get our head around the situation. Now that's number one and number two, letter A and letter B. Don't cave into despair because you can't win a battle if you don't know who the enemy is. You can't solve a problem if you don't understand what the problem is. Um, I, I told you about uh, going to my cardiologist a few years ago and they did a pacemaker check and did all this stuff and um, gave me the folder, which is probably not a smart thing to do to give the patient his folder. But they said, take this with you down to see the doctor. And while I'm down there, I'm, this is a thick thing, so I'm opening it up. I want to see, you know, what's what. And most of it I didn't understand. Um, but there was one little section that caught my eye, um, and it said, end of life. Um, and it said, six years, two months. And I read it again, I, I, I read it several times, end of life, six years, two months. I was first of all impressed that they could predict the end of my life that accurately. I was also very troubled because I was like, I don't know, probably 
58 or nine years old at the time. And I thought, I'm, I'm not even going to see 70. I may not see any of my grandchildren. And end of life, six years, two months. And we went in and they did all this stuff. I said, I need to talk to you. This was the physician's assistant. I said, I'm bothered. I said that you have this kind of information and you're not telling me and that I'm going to die and your estimation is six years and two months. And I gave him all this long, this is not right. I, 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 I'm, I'm a big boy. I don't need this kind of thing hid from me. And she let me just vent and vent and vent. And then she said, Mr. Chitty, that's talking about the battery on your pacemaker. Your, your battery has six years and two months of life left on it. Um, and she said, all we have to do is just change the battery. And um, I said, well, all right then. You know, I, was, I had reshaped my life, my plans, um, everything. And I didn't even understand the situation. Um, and you might be happy to know that now my, I think my battery life is, is up to 11 years, I think. So it, I've, I've become more efficient. But um, don't cave into despair. And then number two, understand the situation. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to declare bankruptcy to get through this. Well, let me tell you this. Bankruptcy is not the end of the world, but... Is, is that really the next step? Are you that close to bankruptcy? Are there some other options? Get your head around what the problem is. Get your head around what the uh, possible solutions are. Now, I, I want to say this. This usually has to do with issues of relationship. But I want you to understand something. Number three, hurting people hurt people. And that's not just... Something where we write people off. Well, hurting people hurt people. You know, we're, we're so silly with some of the designations. So if somebody doesn't agree with us, what do we do? We call them a hater. You know, they, they don't agree with me political. They're a hater. They don't, they don't agree with me philosophically. Well, they're just a hater. They're not a hater. They have a difference of opinion. They may be right. They may be wrong. But that doesn't make them haters. But I, I tell you what, we're, we're in a very vicious age right now. And people don't put any effort into understanding other points of view right now. So you just got to understand that when people hurt, even under the best conditions, hurting people hurt people. I told you about a few weeks ago about my, my dog that would, I think would have, would have fought a grizzly bear for me. But when I was growing up, uh, he, he got hung up with his collar and was choking. And when I tried to help him, he would, he tried to bite me, just tried to rip my arm off because he was hurting, he was choking, he was afraid, he didn't understand what was happening. People can be like that too. And whenever your trauma or your difficulty has to do with relationship, sometimes things are said that people wish they had never said when it's over. Sometimes assumptions are made that people realize after it's over, that's not true, that's, that's just not the way it was. I, I want to say this to you, whenever you are hurting, be careful. I mean, we all, this is the tendency that all of us have, but be careful that you don't lash out at people who may just be trying to help. And sometimes they don't know, they don't know how to help. Okay, so be careful 
that you don't lash out and, and be careful that um, when someone lashes out at you, always give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, there, there comes a time that you have to just say, you know, no more. Uh, this isn't fair. I'm not going to live this way. You know, you, you don't have the right to ruin my life and to insult me with every passing hour, you know, of the, of the day. Sometimes you just have to walk away from a relationship. But generally, if you can, um, if, if you can let yourself understand that, um, oh, how, how uh, I better not go there. That's, that's probably too common, <laughs> the, the illustration I was going to use. But if, but if we can understand that sometimes when people lash out at us, um, not only do we not want to do that, but we need to understand that sometimes, sometimes that's the only thing they do know to do. They're afraid. They're frightened. And have you ever noticed this? Um, you're, you're more prone to lash out at the people you love the most because you know you can get away with it. You, you, you know you can get away with it. And um, we need to be careful. You know, you have a bad day with the boss, and what do you do? You kick the dog and yell at your wife. But it's, you, you love your dog, and you love your wife, certainly, but you know the dog's going to come back, and you know that the wife, she may punch you, but she'll, she'll, now what's going on? Talk to me. What are we really dealing with here? So remember that hurting people hurt people. David, David had 600 men whose lives were worthless before they came to David. David gave them a cause. David gave them an, an uh, integrity. David gave them a future. David gave them a kingdom. They became, you read the rest of David's story, they became mighty men in the, in the, uh, in the administration of David. Um, but things looked so bad and hope looked so far away they, they said, let's kill him. Let's just kill him. The fact of the matter is everything that had been good in their life for the last eight to 12 years, David was responsible for. But all of a sudden, David is the one, he doesn't understand us. He led us down this path. Hurting people hurt people. Let's go to number four. When hopelessness sets in, um, I encourage you to remember the lesson of Hezekiah. When Hezekiah was surrounded by an Assyrian army um, that was besieging Jerusalem. See, the Assyrians had taken the northern kingdom captive. Now they've turned on the southern kingdom. Um, this, was, this was not long after the northern kingdom fell in 723 B.C. Not long after that, just a few years after that, the same thing is about to happen to Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, that's when he spread out the letter, you know, before the Lord and prayed. Now, it, it would be, um, um, do my math, uh, it'd be a little over 100 years later that Babylon would come and would take uh, Jerusalem captive. But Hezekiah spread the letter out before the Lord and began to pray. And his prayer is summarized this way. As he led the people in prayer, they remembered uh, who God is. They began by praising the Lord. 
and remembering that he was the God who brought great deliverance to their life. They began to pray and remember what God had done, the victories they had had in the past. Number three, they remembered what God had promised. And number four, they uh, remembered that they belonged to him. We are your people. And God gave them a mighty victory and um, the, the Assyrians were driven back home and were never a threat to, the, to Judah again um, until they became the kingdom of Babylon. It was, the same, it was the same basic people, but a different kingdom. We see the same thing in the book of Acts. Uh, where was it? Chapter four, I think. Um, when the people, the disciples had been threatened, don't preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Peter and John said, well, you reason yourself, which we should do, obey God or obey you. They came back to the church and the church prayed and the church followed the same pattern as Hezekiah. They remembered who they were praying to. They began by praising God. Lord, you're in charge of this situa situation. They remembered what God had done. You, Lord, you are God over all. You've done this. You have set your name above all names by delivering us in the past. And this is what you promised to us. And Lord, the end of the day, we are yours. So now answer from heaven. And the place was shaken as God moved and God brought a great deliverance for them. So remember the lesson of Hezekiah. When you pray, uh, that's, that's a good place to start is by beginning with praise, reminding God that he is able um, not that he has forgotten it, but it reminds us. R remember who God is. Remember what God has done. Remember what God has promised and remember that you belong to him. I think that's very possibly the kind of praying that David did. Um, number five, don't react impulsively even when victory comes. Remember the circumstances will not last, but relationships should. Now, I'm going to take um, number five and six together. Don't react impulsively. Circumstances are going to change, but after the circumstances change, your relationships should remain intact. Um, remember to honor people, especially those who help make your victory possible. I want to be very practical. This is, this is where I think the Lord has touched my heart for tonight. Um, there was a survey, and this was back when I was in school, so it was the, oh man, the, the survey's probably at least 45 years old. I, I don't know if it's still true, but this was true when I was a very young pastor. And it was the number one reason that people left church. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about somebody that visits for a couple of weeks and decides, no, this isn't the church for me. I'm talking about somebody that comes to church has a track record in church and leaves. And I, I thought about it and um, I didn't accept it at first, but looking back, I think it's, it, it's, tr it's true. It may not be as true now as it was then, but here's the number one reason people left church. They brought their deepest secrets to their pastor for help. And even if the pastor was able to help them, a sense of shame they, they couldn't stand the pastor knowing this about them. Or if the pastor ever talked about a difficult place, they said, he's talking about me. And they would leave, they would leave the church. And um, I thought, you know, that's really a flaw. Either it's the pastor's fault or the people's fault. But there's something wrong with a system where whenever we help each other, the relationship breaks apart. 
And you've, you've all known people. I, we've all had people that we thought were our closest friends that would never separate us from us for any reason. But you go through a tough time together. And you might do the I'm sorry's and you might issue the apologies, but it's never the same or you just really go different directions. Now, the issue tonight isn't about who's right or who's wrong. This is what I'm trying to say. When you go through trauma of life, there is a real danger of letting the situation still have collateral damage, even though you get through it, by causing relationships to fall apart. You know, that's the beautiful thing to me about being married to somebody for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, the assumption is, <laughs> the assumption is that that person knows enough about you to send you to prison. Uh, well, maybe not literally send you to prison, but they know the worst about you. They know the worst about you. They know you on your bad day. They know you on your best day. But there's something beautiful about marriage if it's a good functional marriage. Even though you know the worst about each other, you choose to invest in the best about each other. And you, you, we've all said things that we wish we hadn't said. We've all entertained thoughts that we wish we hadn't entertained. But a good marriage, you learn to lay that over here. You learn to lay that over here and you learn to embrace the, the, the good. I think we need to understand that that's, we probably need to do that more with friendships and not just family or spouses. And we need to understand that some friendships are worth retaining because the tendency when something bad happens is to find someone to blame. Or the church didn't do this, or the, my friend didn't do that, or the board didn't do this, or the pastor didn't do that. It, 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 we, we celebrate superficially because we got through it, but we're still frazzled and wounded, so we want, to, we want somebody to pay for these scars we've got. In this story, they were ready to stone David and it wasn't David's fault. I mean, they could have made a case and said, well, you know, we were following your battle plan and David, you should have known we shouldn't leave the city to the women to defend. That's, that's not a sensible thing to do. Well, maybe not, maybe not. It seems that you would have left a garrison of men behind to protect the city in a culture like that. But the fact of the matter is David was wailing with them as well. David, David, they did not suffer what they suffered because of David. They were men of war. They, uh, we read in scripture where they gave David their counsel and David would change his mind listening to their counsel. If David forgot to garrison the city, so did they. And you say, well, uh, okay, they got over that. Well, we don't know how they got over it. We don't know how long it took him to get over it. You say, well, it must have been quick. They went after him with David. Well, yeah, they were going after their wives and children. I mean, I don't think that was out of devotion to David. I think that was out of desperation for their families. 
So they can't blame David because David brings about this great victory. He's no longer the bad guy. But as they're going back, there were 200 men that were exhausted. And guys, there's nothing in Scripture that indicates these men were not wanting to go forward. I mean, their, their wives and children were out there. They were physically unable to go forward. They had, they, they, for whatever reason, they were exhausted. And maybe they just said, David, we need, just give us four hours of sleep and we'll, we'll pick up and go on. But they couldn't. And David said, all right, then you stay behind. This will be your job back here. And when they came back, now they are described as worthless and wicked. Because even, even in David's mighty men, there are some people with pretty sorry uh, attitudes. But all of a sudden they said, somebody's going to pay for this. And we're going to be sure that you men that didn't go into battle with us, you can take your wife and kids, but just get out of here. We are the only ones that deserve the spoil. And David said, no, he said, that's not going to be part of this resolution. David might have said, you know, we learned something and we won't ever leave a city undefended again. He, he might have said, look, the Lord gave us a victory and we need to focus on celebrating what God has done. But I love what David really said by default. He said, but we are not going to find someone to be the scapegoat for this tragedy that happened. We're not going to do that. He said, there will be a time when you stay behind with the baggage, uh, you know, rear support. And there are times you're on the front line, but the reward will be the same. The reward will be the same because we never know when we'll be on the front. We never know when we'll be held in reserve. We never know when you'll be held back here to guard the supplies. But every one of those things is important. Every one of those things is important. And I, I think we need to, what I'd like to just leave with you in this is I've seen people and I've seen pastors, none of us are exempt, go through a tough time. But because we are scarred, because we are scarred, you know, the, the prophetic uh, psalmist said, these are wounds that I received in the house of my friends. And uh, I, I believe that that was, uh, at least primarily, it was a reference to Jesus being betrayed by Judas. But all of us have wounds received in the house of our friends. But I think the biggest mistake we make is not celebrating God's faithfulness enough and trying to find someone to blame. And it can damage relationships. Um, um, I, I, have, I have seen it through the years. Uh, you know, uh, something happened to a child and one spouse blames the other. Um, uh, money is mismanaged and one, the husband or wife blames the other one for the mismanagement of money. And God is faithful, gets us through it. But we harbor our sense of fear, our sense of insecurity. And what happens, what happens is it scars every future encounter in our lives every future encounter with our lives. My brother who's in heaven now, um, we talked about a situation where uh, 
Um, one of our relatives, like, I gotta be careful here that I don't, I don't, I don't make this traceable by the FBI or something. But my, my brother and I, we were talking about it and uh, he said, this relative of ours, he says, you know, he says, I've been with him three times through the years. And um, he, he said, at the slightest sign of trouble, he said, he just starts punching and ask questions later. And uh, I said, why? And he told me about the instances. I said, that doesn't sound like fighting grounds. I said, he must just like fighting. He said, no. He said, I'll tell you what happened. He said, um, he said he got uh, jumped unexpectedly um, one time and said, I'll never give anybody a chance to jump me again. <laughs> so he kind of took the approach of, if I don't know you're my friend, if I got any questions, you're going down, you know. And that's the way a lot of people are. If they, if they don't get some, when they get scarred, they spend the rest of their lives with their fists up when it's not necessary. Now, sometimes it is. But we don't want to live that way. We don't want to live that way. The most magnificent married couples that I've seen in my years of pastoral ministry, every one of them went through some deep trauma. But the ones that I thought were really great examples came through it. And it was a thing that I just call total forgiveness. It'd be the great name of a book. Just total forgiveness. Um, I would be curious, you know, what happened? How, but they, they honestly had trouble recalling the details because they had, if you forgive, you forgive totally. I can't hold on to his part in this and he can't hold on to my part in this. We just have to commit to each other. That's what I want to leave with you tonight. Justin's going to come and, and um, lead you in prayer. But I just felt as I was getting ready for this, I felt concerned that maybe some of us, I'm not going to ask you to lift your hand or anything like that, but I've been, I've been concerned that some of us, we survived, but we lost something so precious, and that is trust and relationship. And um, you might, you, I'm just suggesting this, you might want to take that to the Lord. And, and, and I know, guys, I know sometimes, sometimes it's just the wise thing to do to end a relationship. I, I know that. Sometimes, it, it, sometimes the hurt is so deep or so layered or so complicated that it's just best to just walk away and just, and just leave it alone. I, I know that. But I think we do that too quickly sometimes. And it scars us for anything that God wants to do in the future. I don't know if I'm articulating this very well, but it, it, if I'm not articulating well, I think the Holy Spirit can touch your heart. Now, I don't want you to, to operate under guilt or, well, I've handled this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. I gotta go now, I've gotta spend the next six months running these people down, you know. No, that, don't, don't be driven. But there may be somebody close at hand that is eager to embrace you as they once did. And if, if the Lord leads you that way, I'd work on it.